We are continuing on in our series of the life, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. We are coming soon to what we call the Holy Week, but it's still a, in our study, still several weeks off. However, when Jesus speaks and teaches, whatever the time and whatever the location, it is something that we should take seriously. However, as most of us, and I think including Jesus, as you get to the end of your time, either at some particular ministry or the end of your life, the things that you have to say take on even greater importance. And so Jesus is going to continue teaching in parables, but I see this particular parable as having so much richness to it uh, that we tend to look at only a part of it. So I want to look at a couple of facets of it. Um, first off, the kind of the context is, is that the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders and many of the Jews, and without throwing stones at them, many of us have a wrong theology. We think when somebody receives wealth and those types of things, that God is impressed that they're somehow righteous and God is rewarding them. And if that's the case, then obviously they're saved. And if there's ministry doing well, then obviously that's a great blessing. And when Jesus keeps teaching in parables about the debtors and about forgiveness and about wealth and that you can't serve two masters, the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders scoff because their theology is, yeah, but God blesses you. So therefore, he's going to take on that false theology again. But he's going to do it in a such a way that is included more than just that false theology. So in Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 19, we see this. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. We're just saying every day. Every day this guy was having a party. He enjoyed his life. He dressed greatly. He dressed in purple, which meant he dressed like royalty. He dressed in not only linen, which was expensive, but fine linen. He looked sharp. He, when he went out, people knew he was a rich man. People knew he was important because he dressed in linen and, linen and he habitually did these things. He just loved it. And he was joyous about it. Living in splendor every day. By contrast, in verse 20 it says, And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now there is some discussion and debate whether this is a parable or an event. Because in almost all the parables except this one, no names are ever given. It just says a Samaritan, or there was a judge, or there was a widow. And it never gives a name, but here Jesus gives a name. I think this is a parable, but I have three reasons I think Jesus names the poor man. 
Reason number one. Lazarus means the Lord has help. Which is going to slap them in the face. Because they go, wait a minute. Here's a guy who's poor, full of sores. Dogs are licking him. And nothing seems to be better while the rich man is living in splendor and eventually just dressing well. What do you mean the Lord has help? And it's not even the Lord will help. It's past tense. The Lord has help because when God acts, it doesn't matter whether it's past tense, present tense, or future tense, it will happen. And so I think Jesus is giving for one of three reasons a name here by the poor man. He's saying, you think it's the rich man that God has helped. And I'm going to tell you it's the poor man who God has helped. And then he's going to show why. But I want you to see that first off, that this man is poor, which means most people don't want to hang out with him because he can't do anything for them. Second off, he has sores, which we're not told exactly what kind of sores, but generally speaking, sores ooze with some kind of liquid. If that's the case, then he would be considered ceremonially unclean. No one would ever want to touch him. And if that wasn't enough, dogs licked it, which meant he was unclean because dogs were not considered clean. And so we have this situation. We have a poor man who's hungry, a poor man who has, who's just hoping to get crumbs. He's not even asking for a seat at the table. He just wants some crumbs from the table. Now, verse 22, the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, I want you to notice it says he died. It doesn't say anything about what they did with the body. I suspect they didn't do much with the body. They probably dropped it off at what, we, what they called at that time Gehenna, the big trash heap. But the important thing was not his body, but his soul. And it says that the angels came and carried him to Abraham's bosom. Which shows a different perspective. The scriptures say, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Now we have a different, because we love the person, or we miss the person, or we're dependent on the person. So there is that grief, which is reasonable. And the scriptures say, we're not to grieve as those who are without hope. It doesn't say we're not to grieve. But God's perspective is not grief. God's perspective is welcome home. And so it's saying that at this point, because Jesus hasn't died and rose again, he is in what is called paradise, called here Abraham's bosom. In essence, what's happened is the angels brought him, and if we take a look in the future with Jesus at the Last Supper, John was at his, Jesus' bosom. He was closest, rested on the chest, the breast of Jesus. And in essence, what's happening is it's saying that this poor man, this unclean man, this one that everybody rejected, he was so honored that he was placed closest to Abraham, the father. So... And the rich man also died. 
and was buried. So they took his body and placed it in a tomb, and they gave him whatever send-off that they would for a rich man. But notice it doesn't say that the angels carried him away. So it says a different place for this man. The poor man is in Abraham's bosom. Verse 23, in Hades, he being the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So he's seen a contrast. He's in torment in Hades while Lazarus is receiving blessings and peace. The second reason I think that this is important is while if this were the only text on hell, then we should not get our theology from here. But when it corroborates the other things that Jesus says, you see, Jesus taught on hell a lot. We tend to just ignore it. We tend to think, oh, well, you know, it's just a figment. No, no. The parable here is a spiritual truth conforming to what Jesus taught where the fire doesn't quench and the worm doesn't die and you're in torment. And so this parable reflects that teaching. So he was in torment, but he saw the contrast of Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. The second reason that I think Jesus gives the poor man a name is because not only was Lazarus the poor man at the gate, the rich man was fully aware that Lazarus was at the gate because he knew his name. This isn't a person, as we're driving off the freeway, holding a sign saying, I'm hungry, and we're in doubt whether we should help or not. Is this person truly in need, or is it just a scam? And we're never sure. The rich man knew Lazarus was in need, so much so that he knew his name. And yet, he still has a little bit of I guess the word would be uppityness. Because he's thinking Lazarus should be sent to minister to him. Because after all, he's the rich guy. And Lazarus was just the poor guy. So he says, send Lazarus to me so that he might serve me, that he might minister to me by putting some water on him and cooling me off because I'm being tormented in these flames. But Abraham said, child, now notice, when he says child, it means he's a DNA son of Abraham. But as Jesus says, that God is able to raise rocks as children of Abraham. And just because your DNA says something doesn't make you that. So he says, child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. 
Now here's the contrast. Yes, Lazarus received bad things for a temporary period of time. And the rich man received good things for a temporary period of time. But Lazarus will receive blessings for eternity. And the rich man will receive torment for eternity. The wise person says, I want to look for eternity, not for the temporary. And he goes, and besides all of this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that there, those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able to. Those people who are affected by what they see will not be able to cross over. And that none may cross over from here, there, to us. The teaching is, once the determination is set, it can't be changed. There is not a second chance in eternity. Every chance that you get is here and now. And I believe almost every non-believer receives more than one chance. And I believe almost every believer receives more than one chance. But once eternity is set in, there's no changing places. To heaven for those who believe, and to Hades for those who do not. Hence, verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have four, five brothers, in order that they may warn them, so that they will not come to this place of torment. Now it's interesting. The person in Hades becomes an evangelist, which is the exact opposite of what you hear people say who are very proud of the fact that they're going to hell. Because they say, oh, my buddies are going to be there. We're going to have a party. Until they get there and they say, I hope my buddies don't come. So all of a sudden, this rich man who could care less about Lazarus, who could care less about God. How do I know that? Because Jesus says, how can you say you love God if you do who you did not see, if you do not love your brother who you can see? And the rich man never offered love to Lazarus. And therefore, he never loved God. If there ever was a neighbor, and if there ever was a question, who is my neighbor? The person parked out at your front gate is your neighbor. And so he wants Abraham to send Lazarus so that he might be an evangelist to tell his brothers not to come to Hades. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The response is, they have the word of God. Jesus even says, in the scriptures you search for eternal life, and they speak of me. If they want, if the rich man ever and his brothers want to know about Jesus and eternal life, then search 
the scriptures because they told of a Messiah who would suffer and die and raise again for them. So he goes, they have the scripture. They already have the necessary evangelist. It's called Moses and the prophets. So let them hear from them. Verse 30, but he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, that's a pretty good argument thing. Well, if somebody rises from the dead, they certainly would listen to them. They certainly would pay attention, and maybe they would not come there. So you would think that, that the rich man's argument might have found a resting place. But he, being Abraham, said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. The third reason I think that Jesus calls Lazarus, Lazarus. Because Jesus, in his ministry, raised from the dead a little girl who's 12 years old. There wasn't mass belief. Jesus saw a young man and his widow mother mourning and feeling compassion. He raised him from the dead. Third case. In a short while, there will be a man called Lazarus who Jesus will raise from the dead after four days being dead. And these same religious leaders instead of repenting, instead of saying that he is the Son of God, determine how to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus. So Abraham is correct. Even if someone raises from the dead, they will not believe. And the final person that I will discuss who raised from the dead is named Jesus the Son of God, who according to the Scriptures died and was buried, and according to the Scriptures raised from the dead. And yet the religious leaders gave money to the guards to tell them to lie. The truth did not matter. All of Christianity lies on one central historical fact, that Jesus rose from the dead. If he did not rise from the dead, Paul even says, then your and my and his faith is in vain. And we are still in our sins if Jesus did not rise from the dead. When there is Uncertainty in our faith, we look to the resurrection of Jesus. When there is uncertainty as whether God will come through, whether the Lord has helped, we look at Jesus and his resurrection, which gives us hope, a living hope. So, the question is, not whether a person rises from the dead or not, 
persuades anybody. The question is, does it cause faith to happen? And those who refuse to believe will refuse to believe. And you know, even in our own culture, there are people who think Jesus was a great teacher. There are even people who think that Jesus was able to do miracles. And some believe that he also rose from the dead. That's as far as they think about it. It doesn't change them. It doesn't change their life. It doesn't change their destiny. You see, the poor man, you cannot judge his trajectory into eternity based on his status. And you cannot determine the trajectory in eternity of the rich man based on his status. And you cannot determine the trajectory of your eternity based on your status, but only based on your understanding and belief that Jesus rose from the dead. The scripture says, for those who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, and confess with their mouth, Jesus as Lord shall be saved. Notice how essential the belief in the resurrection. It's not just, well, I believe that there's a God and I'll believe they'll go to heaven. No, no. The underlying belief is who Jesus is and what did he do? And why did he do it? And so the teaching here is do not be deceived by your circumstances. Second, do not be deceived that you have an opportunity because this may be the last opportunity that a person has to come to saving faith. Because there's no second chance in Hades. Another teaching. Unfortunately, our Catholic brothers and sisters are wrong. There is no purgatory. There's only two destinations. Heaven, or as Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, or Hades, a place of torment. And that if a person simply rejects outright the scriptures, which many people do, even those who claim to be believers, they have these seminars. There's one called the Jesus Seminar, which takes out all the things they don't think that Jesus said. As if they knew him. you're unlikely to bring them to faith. Now, I find it interesting in the 
early days of the church. People came to faith because there weren't the scriptures. They had the Old Testament. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They didn't have Romans that we use to witness to people. They didn't have Galatians. They didn't have all the various books that we have to educate us and to inform us, to give us correct doctrine and correct our movements. But if someone wants you to convince them and they tell you to do away with the scriptures now, it's kind of like what Abraham told the rich man. There was a witness of Moses, the witness of the prophets, the witness of Jesus. If you don't accept that, it's hard to have a conversation. But in the early church, the power of God was evident upon those who believed. And their testimony was genuine. And their testimony was true. Which then leads me to say, to remove one more opposition to those who don't believe. Is that when they read our life, it's consistent with Moses and the prophets and the teachings of Jesus. So that even if they do not read the scriptures, having read our lives, they understand that we not only believe, but we know that Jesus rose from the dead. And if they won't believe him, there is nothing we can do. And again, as I say, we do not have the obligation to win anybody to Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to confess. Our job is to tell. Our job is says, how will they believe unless someone is sent? But you believe based on the word of God. I'm not as poor or as sick as Lazarus. But when it comes to righteousness, I'm as poor, I'm as sick, I'm as unclean, probably more so than him. But it's because the Lord has helped. I am now righteous. Not because of self-righteousness but because of his righteousness. And because of that, I won't be in Abraham's bosom. I will be in the presence of God. And if you believe that as well, so will you. And so the rich man lived splendidly, lived in luxury, lived happily. If that is our destination, to be in the presence of God, and let's start living like that now. Let's start acting like we are going to be there rather than, woe is me. Life is so hard. I can't believe God's making me go through this. Just remember, your name may not be Lazarus, but the Lord has helped. 
And all God's people said,